Today the peoples of Woken, the ocean of rage of the people of the region, will surge and eradicate the Zionist regime. Death to Israel. Death to Israel. out of Iraq and the Middle East so they can stop the advance of freedom and impose their dark vision on the people of the Middle East. Western misconceptions of Islam. From the inception of Islam, the Christian West has had difficulty understanding Islam as a different religious phenomenon than Christianity. When Muslims conquered the Iberian Peninsula in the 8th century, Christians referred to Muslims arriving from North Africa as Moors. Over the centuries, Spaniards continued to refer to Muslims as Moors, even if they were from India or Indonesia. In the rest of Europe, Muslims were referred to as Turks. In Asia Minor, Christians referred to Muslims as Tartars, an ethnic name. When Europeans finally understood that Islam was not an ethnic group, they mistakenly perceived it in terms of a Western religious group. In the early 1900s, Europeans began referring to Islam as Mohammedism and Muslims as Mohammedans, incorrectly assuming the Prophet Muhammad had the same role in Islam that Jesus did in Christianity. To this day, misunderstandings continue. Westerners describe the mosque as a Muslim church, equate the Muslim Friday to the Christian Sunday refer to the Quran as the Muslim Bible and believe sheikhs to be Muslim priests. The conflict in Gaza and the West Bank today is a struggle between extremists and moderates. Also, Westerners mistakenly resort to their own worldview by grouping Muslim leaders as left and right wing, moderate, conservative, and radical. Freedom, justice, and peace. So different are Western and Muslim worldviews that identical words can have two different meanings. We are now in the early hours of this struggle between tyranny and freedom. In the West, freedom is the ability of individuals to participate in the formation, conduct, and lawful removal of governments from power, the basis of constitutionalism and parliamentary government. For the Islamic world, ruled by foreign powers in modern times, freedom meant national independence from foreign rule, which they equated with tyranny. In the West, the opposite of tyranny is freedom. In Islam, the opposite of tyranny is justice. For Muslim thinkers, justice is the ideal. I am looking for peace. I am struggling for peace. But it's just peace. All of us, the sons and daughters 
of Abraham living in a tent of peace again. As for the word peace, Westerners have liberal and romantic images of harmony between groups or nations. In Arabic, the modern definition of salam simply means an absence of conflict, more like the word truce in English. The Arabic word suha, defined as reconciliation, is much closer to the Western definition of peace. For example, the Arab-Israeli conflict was in a state of salam between 1956 and 1967 from a Muslim point of view. Yet there was no peace from a Western point of view. Nationalism, Christianity's solution. During the Dark Ages, European civilization endured 500 years of stagnation and decline due to the dominance of the Catholic Church in Europe. Next, strife between Catholics and Protestants threatened to destroy Christian society. Finally, Christianity saved itself by separating church and state and introducing the concept of nationalism, a nation-state based on geographic boundaries, ethnicity, and language to determine personal identity and political loyalty. Nationalism and the expulsion of the church from government was a success. It resurrected Christian Europe from decline. 300 years of world domination began with the discovery of the Americas, then the Industrial Revolution, as Europe led the world into the era of modernity. Europe also exported its Western culture and concept of nationalism to the entire world. However, nationalism, which evolved from Christianity's historic trials, would never integrate successfully into the world of Islam, where loyalty could only be to God, the sovereign of the world, and all mankind. Islamic identity. Understanding the centrality of Islam in the lives of Muslims is the key to understanding Islam. For Muslims, the foundation of identity and loyalty revolves around religion, while the religio-political community defines nationhood. Religion distinguishes those who belong to the society from those who are outside of it. In 1917, the Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire stated, The fatherland of a Muslim is the place where the holy law of Islam prevails. An Egyptian Muslim, for example, feels closer bonds to a Pakistani Muslim than to an Egyptian Christian, as Muslims of different countries, even speaking different tongues, have a shared feeling of a divinely guided past and a sense of a mutual plight and destiny. The Ummah, political authority and communal life. For Muslims, the true and sole sovereign is God, from whose mandate the Prophet Muhammad derived his authority and from whose will, made known by revelation, is the sole source of political and religious law. The political community of Islam is known as the Ummah. From its inception, the Ummah was the fusion of politics and religion. The Prophet Muhammad founded and presided over an Islamic government as prophet and head of a state, and founded an empire whose followers understood worldly success and military victory were part of divine affirmation. Therefore, the teachings of Islam 
have social and political goals with the purpose of succeeding in this world, in politics, warfare, diplomacy, and economics. Consequently, in Islam, religion is not merely one segment of life. It regulates the total domain. In Islam's view of the world, mankind is divided into two irreconcilable camps. The territory of Islam, Dar al-Islam, and the territory of war, Dar al-Harb. All lands under Islamic control are considered Dar al-Islam, where Islamic law reigns. Those lands beyond Islamic control are Dar al-Harb, the territory of war, essentially the rest of the world. The Prophet Muhammad is said to have said, Al-Kufu Milatun Wahida, unbelief is one nation. In the Islamic view, all of mankind will one day accept Islam or submit to its rule. Inshallah, Islam, Hamiye, Ujarabat Falcha, Hamiye Ulnahoye, Jahandufat Falcha. Logically, then, Islam cannot recognize political borders nor permanent peace treaties with Dar al Harb. Therefore, according to Ibn Taymiyyah, a 14th century Muslim jurist, any act of war against Dar al-Harb is morally justified, legal, and exempt from any ethical judgment. Islamism on the rise. Islamism is on the march, getting ready for what it considers to be a coming fateful war for the future of Islam. Since its Islamic revolution of 1979, Iran has been the undisputed leader of the Islamic revival. Islamism is an indigenous grassroots movement championed by both poor and educated Muslims throughout the Muslim world. Islam is the solution is the Islamist call to action against westernization and secular governments in the Muslim world that provide the masses with little hope or future. Islamism is an internal struggle for the future of Islam, not a war against the West. Islamists do not consider themselves to be revolutionaries in the sense of revolution changing society in a new way. Rather, Islamists strive to rebuild internally by applying traditional principles to re-establish the past strength and glory of Islam. Islamist writer Saeed Kitab, in Signposts on the Path, wrote, The leadership of Western man in the human world is coming to an end, not because Western civilization is materially bankrupt or has lost its economic or military strength, but because the Western order has played its part and no longer possesses that stock of values which gave it its predominance. The turn of Islam has come. To simply dismiss Islamists as extremists is short-sighted. Islamists endeavor to build a constructive society based on justice, using the best moral values from Islamic tradition, history, and law. Islamism represents the only serious alternative to the present forms of government in the Muslim world and represents the innermost aspirations of Muslims across Dar al-Islam.
the pillars of Islam, foundations of faith and empire. The religion of Islam. The doctrine of Islam holds that Islam is the only true and eternal religion. The Prophet Muhammad pronounced that he did not found a new religion, but rather was a messenger, calling humanity back to the one true path. Muhammad preached that Christian and Jewish scriptures were divine revelations, but had been altered over the centuries, such that they could no longer be trusted. Belief in Islam is also known as the straight path. Islam has no priests nor bishops, and even the ulama, the learned men, expert in Islamic doctrines and practices, are not set apart from others in Islam. All Muslims are equal in the Islamic way of life. God. In Islam, God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and the creator of all that was and is, and all that will be. God is the righteous judge of good and evil. God is merciful and charitable, but also capable of great anger. Above all, he is one and only one. Prophets and messengers. God's books were revealed to prophets or messengers who were mortals. In fact, the entire group of monotheistic prophets are part of the Islamic truth. Abraham received the first revelation, and his basic message was Islamic. The Quran says Abraham was the first Muslim. Muslims have high regard for Jesus, Esau, who is pictured as a wandering mortal preacher who performed miracles. He was given a scripture, the gospel, but the book was hopelessly distorted. Muhammad's prophethood was the seal of the prophets. No more prophets will come before judgment day. In Islam, all prophets are revered, but no one prophet may be exalted above the others. The Quran. The Quran is the divine and sacred foundation of Islamic law, consisting of God's revelations to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel. Written in 114 chapters, or surahs, the Quran contains commandments, rules, ethical regulations, historical recreations, and wise sayings. An unswerving belief and devotion to the Quran is essential to all Muslims. The Hadith. Muslims derive spiritual nourishment and daily guidance from a supplement to the Quran called the Hadith. Muhammad conveyed many edicts on justice, property, responsibilities, and personal and family behavior that make up the Hadith, considered the tradition of Islam. The five pillars of Islam. Profession of faith, Shahada. Muslim must profess these words, La ilaha il Allah, Muhammad Rasul Allah. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. Anyone who says these words and believes them is a Muslim. Prayer, Salah. We are taking you to The holy city of Islam. Believers must purify themselves with either water or desert sand and pray five times a day. Prayer time includes reciting special verses, kneeling, and prostrating oneself. 
Fasting, Song. The purpose of fasting is to commemorate Muhammad's Hijra from Mecca to Medina. During the month of Ramadan, no Muslim is allowed to eat, drink, or smoke during daylight hours. However, at night, families and friends gather for huge meals. Giving of alms, zakat. Muhammad proclaimed that each Muslim, except the very poor, was required to contribute a portion of his or her wealth, about two and a half percent, to the poor. Pilgrimage, Hajj. This requires every Muslim who is economically and physically able to make a journey to the holy city of Mecca at least once in a lifetime. Each year, Muslims congregate at the shrine of the Kaaba in Mecca to circle the Kaaba, kiss the black stone, run between the nearby hills of Safa and Marwa, stone a pillar near Mina, representing the devil, sacrifice sheep, and assemble on the plain of Arafat. Jihad. The five pillars do not cover all Muslim duties. Jihad is a communal religious duty for Muslims. During the early centuries of Islamic expansion, raising the sword against Harbi was the main emphasis of jihad. The Quran commands Muslims, fight against those who do not believe in God or the judgment day, who permit what God and his messenger have forbidden, and who refuse allegiance to the true faith. The primary objective of military jihad is not the conversion of individuals to Islam, but rather the gaining of political control over the collective affairs of societies to run them in accordance with the principles of Islam. The Quran emphasizes that those who die in military jihad automatically become martyrs, shaheed, and are awarded a special place in paradise. Today, Westerners think of jihad as Islam's holy war, but this is not completely accurate. Jihad is also an inner spiritual struggle of the heart against vice and ignorance, and choosing to do good while avoiding evil. The Sharia, Islamic holy law. By the end of the ninth century, classical Islamic jurists compiled a law code called the Sharia, an Arabic word meaning way. It is comparable to the Jewish Talmud, though there is nothing similar in Christianity. The Sharia classifies all possible human behavior as obligatory, recommended, neutral, objectionable, or forbidden by God, the supreme legislator. The Sharia includes rules about marriage, divorce, child-rearing, interpersonal relationships, property, food and clothing, hygiene, aspects of prayer, and even commercial and criminal law. Ever mindful of the impending judgment day, the Sharia helps Muslims know and obey rules of behavior that will please God and maintain a harmonious society. Islamism advocates the implementation of Sharia and the restoration of the Quran as the sole authority for government in Muslim countries. Women in Islam. And we have learned that their goal is to build a radical Islamic empire where women are prisoners in their homes. In Islamic society, women generally tend to affairs of the home rather than the public world. This custom, called purda, is widely misunderstood by Westerners as a form of oppression. From the Muslim point of view, 
Purda provides women a form of protection and a place of respect in society, as does the wearing of the veil and other restrictions from contact with unrelated men. Universe and humanity. Islam believes God created the universe in six days, but does not agree with other religions that say God created man in his own image, nor that God tired from the work of creation. Muslims believe the universe consists of seven heavens, seven earths, and everything inside of them. The seven heavens are stacked above the earths. Humanity resides on the highest earth, and Satan resides in hell on the lowest. The lowest heaven is our sky, and the highest heaven is paradise. Although God is everywhere, he resides at the top of the world. In God's universe, there are angels, jinn, heavenly servants who obey divine will. Among the angels is Gabriel, who is entrusted with revelation. Satan, Iblis, or Al-Shaitan, was a jinn who disobeyed God's command to bow to Adam. Having fallen from God's service, he now tries to corrupt mankind. Islam often portrays Satan as a symbol of ultimate evil. In regime manhus, parcham shaitan as, parcham shaitan as. As Satan is God's enemy, anyone fighting against Dar al-Islam is satanic. As America is the leader of the West, and its culture, ideals, and military opposes Islam, America is the great Satan. Judgment Day. Among Islam's basic tenets, none was preached more fervently by Muhammad than the belief in a final judgment day from which no one can escape. On this day of doom, all living people will die and all the dead will be summoned before God's throne to be judged. There, God will review every individual's book of deeds to determine their afterlife, a reward of paradise, heaven, or damnation to everlasting punishment in hell. The Quran depicts paradise as a shaded garden with cooling fountains and beautiful maidens for the eternal bliss of righteous men. Righteous women will also enter heaven. In paradise, men and women will know peace, live in harmony, and see God. Hell is the abode of punishment that God has prepared for unbelievers and evildoers. For those who deny the hour, we have prepared a blazing fire, Allah reveals in the Quran. When they are thrown into a narrow corner thereof, chained together, they will at once pray for annihilation. The life of Muhammad. Islam eliminates its Jewish problem. The Crossroads of the Empires At the dawn of the 7th century, the two great empires of Byzantine and Persia confronted each other across the Middle East. The Byzantine Empire, to the west of Arabia, was the descendant of the classical Roman Empire and was almost completely Christianized. To the east was the Persian Empire, extended all the way to Afghanistan. Neither empire attempted to control the Arabian Peninsula. The vast desert was simply of little interest. Pre-Islamic Arabia. The desert, nomadism, and tribal life were essential features of pre-Islamic Arabia. The Arabs were herdsmen, raiders, and mercenaries. The Bedouin, 
nomadic desert Arabs followed their flocks of goats across the burning desert from one isolated oasis to the next. The camel, their main means of transportation, contributed much to their way of life. Some desert nomads established small towns, the most important being Mecca. The Bedouin were illiterate and superstitious, but also rugged, proud warriors known for generosity. Political loyalty of the Arabs was affixed to their tribal group, which was a social, political, and military alliance. The Arabian desert was, and still is, a world where a lone individual can quickly perish. Only by allying with others could one hope to stay alive in the harsh desert reality. Religions of Arabia. The Arabs were polytheists. The religions included worship of astral divinities, such as Alat, a sun goddess. Arabs made sacrifices and offerings to deities embodied in trees or sacred rocks. By the year 600 AD, just prior to the life of Muhammad, Christian and Jewish settlements were prevalent in Arabia, especially in the oasis town of Yathrib. The city of Yathrib, later Medina, lay 250 miles in an oasis north of Mecca. The 11 main clans of Yathrib included three Jewish tribes, Kariza, Anadir, and Kainuka. The politics of Yathrib was characterized by fighting, strife, and disorder among the Arab tribes, with the Jews acting as a counterbalance. Mecca's importance was its location midway along the west coast of the Arabian Peninsula and near the Red Sea. The arid desert town was a way station for wandering nomads and camel caravans, often 2,000 camels long, carrying spices, metals, silk, ivory, and food. A booming merchant class arose from the constant influx of travelers and merchants. Mecca was also home to a sacred rock, a black stone, enshrined in the Kaaba by Arabs for many centuries. The Kaaba made Mecca a holy site for religious pilgrimage, as well as a center of commerce. The Call to Prophethood. Muhammad was born into the Quraysh tribe in Mecca around 570. In the year 610, Muhammad received the call as he approached the age of 40. The event is described in the Quran as a sudden explosion. One night on Mount Hira, where Muhammad spent a month each year, he was visited in his sleep by the angel Gabriel, who commanded him to begin reciting. It followed that the angel Gabriel would be the channel of communication between Muhammad and God, and the revelations would come in fragments, which would make up the Quran. At first, Muhammad was confused by his experience. He told his wife Khadija what had happened, and she believed him. Next, Khadija told Muhammad's story to a Meccan Christian, who said that Muhammad was the prophet of his people, that he had been approached by the same spiritual force with whom Moses, the great leader of the Jews, had communicated. While asleep, the angel Gabriel took Muhammad on a supernatural journey to Jerusalem, where he met Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. After leading them in prayer, Gabriel took him to visit heaven. Muhammad later recited this experience to Christians who confirmed his description of the topography of Jerusalem. Muhammad was now convinced that God had indeed chosen him for a special mission. Opposition and rejection. 
In 613, Muhammad began preaching in Mecca, but won few supporters. For the first three years, the new religion was simply a private matter. Though Islam would soon develop into a complex religion with many doctrines, rituals, and traditions, during these early days, Muhammad's message was simple and direct. Muhammad was a prophet of the one true God, Allah, who created and ruled the universe. All must praise and worship Allah. All believers were equal in the eyes of Allah, and the rich should share with the poor. There is a coming judgment day when all mankind would be judged and assigned an afterlife by Allah. Muhammad expected Christians and Jews to accept him as the latest of God's prophets, the final extension of their monotheistic beliefs. When acceptance did not come, Muhammad was greatly disappointed. Arab polytheists simply did not take him seriously in a society of many faiths and gods. Slowly, Muhammad won Meccan converts, and relations between the Prophet and the pagan Meccans deteriorated as he verbally attacked idol worshippers and pilgrims who visited various deities at the Kaaba. The Hijra. One way to avoid expensive car repair. Tribesmen from Yathrib met Muhammad at a fair where he was preaching. They embraced Muhammad for two reasons. First, the Jews of Yathrib had familiarized them with the idea of the coming of a prophet. Second, they thought Muhammad, as a religious figure, might unite the people of Yathrib and provide a solution to their communal strife. Muhammad immediately ordered his followers to leave Mecca and immigrate to Yathrib. Muhammad's immigration to Yathrib is called the Hijra. Muhammad's followers were called believers or Muslims. The literal meaning of Muslim is one who submits to God. The root of the word believer is submission, Islam, which became the name of Muhammad's religion. Following the Hijra, Yathrib became known as Medina, the Arabic word for city, as in the city of the Prophet. The Hijra marked the start of a new chapter in the history of humanity as the political reign of Islam had begun. The Ummah. Muhammad founded the Ummah, the Islamic community, with God as the sovereign and Muhammad as the political authority. Religion and the power of the state were combined as one. Muhammad was the spiritual leader, chief judge, and lawgiver of the Ummah. It was not Muhammad's military position that led men to accept him as leader, but his prophethood and religious status. The political and legal authority was accepted only because of its religious basis. This would become the basis for Islamic government and loyalties of Muslims for centuries to come. The conflict with the Jews. Relations steadily broke down between Muhammad and the Jewish tribes of Medina. The Jews could not accept that Muhammad, a Meccan merchant, was their Messiah or prophet of God. For the Jews, if a prophet arising among Gentiles was genuine, then their basic ideology of Jews being God's chosen people was false. For Muhammad, if the Jews did not accept his prophethood and still maintain power and prominence in Medina, then he could not genuinely be God's prophet and messenger. The Battle of Badr. In March 624, Muhammad learned that a Meccan trade caravan was passing near Medina and ordered 315 men to prepare an attack against its 900 armed Meccans. The two small armies engaged at Wad Badr, 
a dry riverbed 20 miles south of Medina. The outnumbered Muslims fought bravely as their belief in God and paradise inspired confidence. Muhammad's forces defeated the Meccans at Badr and returned to Medina loaded with booty and prisoners. Four-fifths of the booty went to the raiders, with the remaining one-fifth going to Muhammad for the good of the community. The Battle of Badr was not a mere military affair. It had profound religious significance for the Muslims. After years of hardship, they had been victorious over their original, more powerful foe. The success of Badr was thought of as God's deliverance for Muslims, not dissimilar to the Israelites' salvation from destruction at the hands of Pharaoh and the parting of the Red Sea. The Quran describes the event in religious terms. You did not kill them, but God killed them. You did not shoot and strike when you shot, but God shot to let the believers experience good from himself. The first expulsion of Jews. Days later, Muhammad decided to rid Medina of Jews who had ridiculed his claim to prophethood. A large party of Muslims besieged them for 15 days in their strongholds. The Kainuka clan finally surrendered. They agreed to leave Medina with their families, but leave behind their arms and goldsmith's tools. The Battle of Uhud. In order to maintain regional commercial operations, the Meccans had to show they were stronger than Medina and capable of removing any threat to trade. In March 625, 3,000 Meccans marched against Medina, confronting the Muslims at Uhud, a hill near Medina. In the battle, the Meccans killed 75 Muslims while losing only 27 of their men. The Muslims, in fact, prevailed as the Meccan goal to remove Muhammad had failed. However, while the Muslims were not defeated militarily at the Battle of Uhud, the higher loss of men was considered a spiritual failure since military and religious issues were inseparable. Why had they lost? Had they lost Allah's favor? As Badr was a sign of God's vindication, did Uhud signify loss of favor? Muhammad realized that Muslims had become too interested in the booty of war and forgotten their duty to God. Thus, God allowed the Muslim setback at Uhud as punishment for abandoning him and as a test. Such were the religious issues created by the Battle of Uhud. Soul-searching, accepting some blame, and a return to traditional values in the face of Islamic defeat would become an enduring theme throughout the ages. The second expulsion of Jews. In August 625, Muhammad demanded a contribution of blood money from the Jewish tribe of Anadir. The Jews refused, so he gave them an ultimatum. Leave Medina within 10 days or be killed. They would retain ownership of their palm trees and receive part of the produce. The Jews again refused, and a 15-day siege resulted. Anadir lost heart when the Muslims began destroying their palm trees. They agreed to Muhammad's original demand, but now he imposed less favorable terms. They were to leave their weapons behind and have nothing from the palms. Anadir agreed and departed in a caravan of 60 camels for the settlement of Kabar, 70 miles to the north. Houses and palm trees belonging to the Jews were allotted to the Muslims. The Siege of Medina. On March 31st, 627, the pagan Meccans began a massive effort to defeat Muhammad and break his power in Medina. 
the Meccans gathered a vast confederacy, including nomadic tribes hired to participate and numbering 10,000 men and 600 horses. Muhammad's men numbered only 3,000. The last remaining Jewish tribe in Medina, Quraiza, tried to remain neutral. With the enemy more numerous and possessing vastly superior cavalry, Muhammad adopted a new form of defense unknown in Arabia, the digging of trenches. The siege of Medina is known as the expedition of the Kandak, or trench. The Meccans tried to persuade the Jews of Quraiza to attack the Muslims from the south, but nothing came of it. The Muslims successfully repelled all assaults for two weeks. Suddenly, rain swept the battlefield and the huge confederacy ended in disarray and withdrew. The execution of the Jews of Karaza. Muhammad concluded that the Jews of Karaza had been guilty of treasonable acts against the Ummah because they had been in contact with the Meccans. A 25-day siege began. Eventually, the Karaza asked Muhammad to be allowed to surrender on the same terms as Anadir. Instead, Muhammad appointed a judge, Sa'd ibn Muwadah, to decide the fate of the Jews. The judge decided, I condemn the men to death, their property to be divided by the victors, their women and children to be slaves. The sentence was carried out on the following day as the Muslims slaughtered 900 men. The women and children were sold into slavery and the Jews' land and possessions were divided amongst the Muslims. The Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah in 628, Muhammad and 1,400 Muslims traveled toward Mecca, making camp at nearby Al-Hudaybiyah. Hostilities were avoided when Muhammad and the Meccans agreed on a treaty called the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah, in which the two sides agreed to suspend hostilities against one another for 10 years. The Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah was favorable to Muhammad's long-term strategy to incorporate Mecca into Islam at some future date. In the meantime, Mecca would regard Muhammad as disposed to friendliness and non-aggression. The Siege of Kabar. Six weeks later, Muhammad led the Muslims on a raid of Kabar, the rich Jewish oasis to the northeast. After fierce fighting, 93 people were killed, and the Jews negotiated a surrender with Muhammad. In the surrender agreement, a new principle was introduced. The Jews would continue to cultivate the land, but would give up half of their harvest as payment of tribute to the Muslims. Also, Muhammad reserved the right to break the agreement and expel them if he chose. All the Jewish and Christian tribes in Arabia submitted to the Muslims under similar terms. The Jews and Christians, the Dimi, were to pay a tribute tax known as Jizya. The Pact of Kabar agreement fixed the relationship between Muslim victors and vanquished Christian and Jewish populations when Islamic conquerors expanded beyond Arabia. The conquest of Mecca. The Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah did not last long. With his power now increased over a wide area and Mecca neutralized by the treaty, Muhammad was soon in a position to move against Mecca. In January 630, the Prophet and 10,000 Muslim warriors advanced on Mecca. The Muslim forces divided into four columns and stormed the city from four directions. The Quraysh offered little resistance and Mecca was easily conquered. Muhammad ordered all the idols at the Kaaba destroyed, rededicated it as a holy Muslim shrine, and proclaimed Mecca as the holy city of Islam. 
non-believers were forbidden entry to Mecca upon penalty of death. By 631, with the Quran and sword in hand, Muslim warriors had subjugated all the nomadic desert tribes of Arabia, and the Arabian Peninsula was ruled by Muhammad and Islam. Idolatry had been eliminated from the Arabian Peninsula, and the Dimi, Jews and Christians, were paying tribute to the Muslims. The Islamic conquests, jihad, and dominance over non-believers. The death of the prophet. In the year 632, at the age of 59, Muhammad's health deteriorated and he died. Muslims across Arabia were shocked at the prophet's passing. Without his presence, it was feared the Ummah would fall apart and Islam would disappear. Who could rule in the place of the great Muhammad? This question elicited both a political and spiritual crisis that would plague Islam for centuries to come. Muhammad left no successor, nor even a system for choosing one upon his death. No individual in the Ummah had Muhammad's stature, and of course no one claimed prophethood. After much argument, Muslim tribal leaders chose Abu Bakr as their leader, appointing him to the office of Caliph, or Deputy of the Muslims. Abu Bakr tried to placate the believers, pronouncing that though Muhammad was gone, his holy messages would endure and Allah's rule still existed, and that Islam was greater than the life of any man. However, with Muhammad gone, many desert tribes sought to sever their ties with Mecca. The breakaway movement became known as the apostasy, Rida. Abu Bakr ordered the fabled warrior Khalid ibn al-Walid to quash the revolt. After unifying the peninsula, Khalid marched his Bedouin warriors beyond Arabia, into Syria and Persia, setting the stage for the Islamic conquests that would soon follow. Islam explodes out of Arabia. In 634, Abu Bakr named Umar ibn al-Khattab as his successor shortly before he died. Umar referred to himself as commander of the faithful, used by many future leaders. A period of bold expansion and conquest began as most of Byzantine and Persia, vast territories stretching from the Middle East to Northern Africa, fell under Muslim rule. Each success reinforced their divine mission and that Allah was on their side. As Umar carried the jihad far beyond Arabia, Jews and Christians could buy the right to life and freedom of worship if they agreed to pay tribute and accept Islamic rule. Khalid ibn Awalid's statement in Damascus in Umar referred to himself as commander of the faithful, used by many future leaders. A period of bold expansion and conquest began as most of Byzantine and Persia, vast territories stretching from the Middle East to Northern Africa, fell under Muslim rule. Each success reinforced their divine mission and that Allah was on their side. As Umar carried the jihad far beyond Arabia, Jews and Christians could buy the right to life and freedom of worship if they agreed to pay tribute and accept Islamic rule. Khalid ibn Awalid's statement in Damascus in 635 became standard terms of surrender for Jews and Christians. In the name of Allah, the compassionate, the merciful, he promises to give them security for their lives, property, and churches. We give to them the pact of Allah and the protection of his prophet, the caliphs and the believers. So long as they pay the tax, 
nothing but good shall befall. Islam conquers North Africa, Spain, India, and China. The Islamic conquests spread over land and sea. Guided by spirited and fearless leaders, the Muslims overcame the remaining Persian armies, seizing Babylonia, Mesopotamia, Armenia, and Persia. In the west, they conquered the Christian provinces of the eastern Mediterranean, from Syria and Palestine to Egypt, Tunisia, Algeria, and Morocco. In 711, Muslims crossed the Strait of Gibraltar, advancing into the Iberian Peninsula to establish a foothold in Europe. A few years later, they controlled all of Spain and Portugal. The Muslims then headed for Europe's heartland. They were halted in the Pyrenees by Frankish leader Charles Martel at Narbonne in 720 and in 732 at the Battle of Tours at Pontiers. By 751, Islam had expanded all the way to the Indus River Valley in India and central China. A little over one century after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, Muslim rule covered more of the earth than did the Roman Empire at its peak. The Dimi, the tributaries. Under Islamic rule, Jews and Christians were permitted full administrative and judicial control over their communities through their religious authorities, the bishop or rabbi. Jews and Christians were allowed to keep their original faith and live under Islamic supremacy within the Ummah in a tolerated, protected status and pay a tribute tax. Islam regards Jews and Christians as religio-political communities as Islam sees itself, but inferior. The status of Jews and Christians under Islam is one of natural inequality based on divine beliefs because Jews and Christians fail to recognize Muhammad as the final messenger of God, thereby accepting Islam. Islamic rule recognizing a place, albeit an inferior one, for other revealed religions represented a considerable advance for the era. The very idea of coexistence, even in a state of inequality, and the granting of self-administration, though oppressive by modern standards, was tolerant by medieval standards. According to a hadith, the prophet once said, Allah would torment those who torment people in the world. Beware of the supplication of the oppressed, for there is no barrier between him and Allah. Whoever will kill a tributary will not smell the fragrance of paradise. The Covenant of Umar. As Islam expanded through Africa and Asia, it subjugated and absorbed millions of people. As Islam was the true path, Muslim conquerors saw themselves as the rightful heirs of Jewish and Christian civilization, monuments, culture, and history. Mosques were built on the holiest of Jewish temples and Christian churches. Many cities lost their original names. Amid, Armenia, was renamed Diyarbakir. Constantinople became Istanbul. Jerusalem was renamed Al-Quds, and Hebron became Al-Khalil. Though many hadiths cited the Prophet's admonitions against mistreatment of protected peoples, the Dimi status evolved to one of oppression and humiliation as a new body of rules emerged, known as the Covenant of Umar, all to demonstrate the absolute supremacy of Islam. The new Dimi system would be practiced over an expanse of continents for over a thousand years. The implementation and harshness or level of tolerance for Dimi under Islam varied depending on time and place and the ruler.
Discriminatory taxes. Karaj was a tax on cultivating land for farming. Jizya, a poll tax often paid at a humiliating public ceremony in which the dhimmi was struck on the head. In some areas, a receipt for the jizya was worn around the neck as a mark of dishonor. Places of worship. The construction of new synagogues and churches was forbidden. Liturgy. The ringing of church bells, the sounding of the ram's horn, shofar, in public was prohibited. Burial. Dimi cemeteries, considered as being within the realm of hell, were not respected. Law. Dimi testimony in court was not considered valid based on hadiths, which maintained that non-believers were of perverse and diabolic nature because they persisted in denying the superiority of Islam. Public administration. Dimi were excluded from public office, so a non-believer should never exercise authority over Muslims. Living quarters. Dimi houses had to be smaller than Muslims. Slaves. Dimi were not permitted to own slaves who converted to Islam. Matrimony. Marriage or sexual relations between Dimi and Muslim women was punishable by death. However, a Muslim man could marry a Dimi woman. Degrading tasks. Jews and Christians were commonly assigned to public works projects, such as the digging of cisterns, the construction of bridges, roads, and train tracks. Riding animals. Riding a noble animal, such as a horse or camel, by Dimi was regarded as a grave offense. Outside of towns, Dimi were allowed to ride on donkeys. A Dimi would typically have to dismount and pass a Muslim on foot to show respect. The Islamic Empire, Golden Ages and Crusader Clashes. Islamic Outlook on the World. By military conquest, Islam had spread throughout the Middle East, Africa, Europe, and Asia. The Golden Age of Islam found many races and cultures unified under Islam, while the Arabic language and culture now dominated the civilized world. Muslims of every age traveled by foot, beast, or sea, crossing huge expanses of parched desert to complete the sacred journey to Mecca, even if it took years. The intermingling of peoples from vast societies with its Islamic emphasis on equality and brotherhood helped build a feeling of common purpose and Islamic community throughout the empire. This resulted in an exciting exchange of ideas. The Islamic empire became the most advanced civilization in the world, and it reinforced the belief in the divinity of the Ummah and the superiority of Islam. Muslims enjoyed a standard of living that surpassed the rudimentary village life of Christian Europe. Saqid ibn Ahmad, the Qadi, or judge of the Muslim city of Toledo, wrote a book in 1068 describing the center and highest level of civilization in the world as the territory of Islam. The northern Christian societies represented an arrested stage of development, and to the far north and south were white and black barbarians. Muslim advances. 
The experimentation by Arabs with powders, elements, and compounds evolved into the science of chemistry. The names of many chemicals originated with Arab alchemists, including alcohol, alkali, soda, alembic, and syrup. The basic components of the Arab laboratory, flasks, beakers, and vials, were adopted worldwide and are still in use today. With the Islamic conquests, Muslim doctors began adding knowledge and innovation to the field of medicine. The best-known Muslim physician was Al-Razi, known as Razis by Europeans, who produced a vast medical encyclopedia. By the 10th century, Muslims were able to conduct abdominal and cranial surgery. Modern optics were pioneered by 10th century Persian physicist Ibn Haythan, known as Al-Hazan. Muslim cities were well-planned, boasting fountains, public baths, running water, and public libraries. A distinctive Islamic architecture spread with Islam. Characteristics included large rounded domes, minarets, mosaic tiles, marbled walls, colored glass, patios, and tiled roofs. Muslim artisans produced handcrafted items considered the most elegant in the world, including tapestries, carpets, pottery, and glassware. As the jihad took Muslims into uncharted lands, Muslim geographers created maps, atlases, and calendars by rediscovering the Greek astrolabe, a device used in antiquity to calculate locations by the elevation of the sun or star. While searching the skies, Muslim astronomers confirmed ancient Greek knowledge of planet locations, examined sunspots, and determined the Earth was round. With advances in astronomy came great advances in mathematics, as Muslims perfected calculus, geometry, and trigonometry. They also advanced the idea of zero as a circle-shaped symbol, as if to symbolize an empty bowl. Caliph al-Mamin created the House of Wisdom in Baghdad. Muslim scholars were especially interested in ancient Greek thinkers like Aristotle, Euclid, Archimedes, and Galen, who were at the time of little interest in Christian Europe. The most important of all the arts for Muslims was the use of the Arabic language, the language Muhammad used to speak the divine revelations of Allah. Islamic law was meticulously developed. Muslim jurists created a judicial system based on Sharia, which was based on the Quran and the Hadith. Christianity and Islam. A major confrontation was brewing between the empires of Islam and Christendom. In 1061, the Christians launched the Reconquista to reconquer Spain, resulting in the expulsion of the Muslims to Morocco. However, in 1071, the Muslims defeated Byzantine troops at the Battle of Manzikert, bringing them closer to the long-held Islamic goal of conquering Constantinople. The Crusades. Throughout Europe, religious Christians were incensed that the land where Jesus had lived was governed by Muslims and that many Christians had converted to Islam. In 1095, Pope Urban II urged Christians across Europe to form armies of hundreds of thousands to fight the Muslims and the First Crusade was launched. In 1099, the Christian Crusaders captured Jerusalem, establishing the First Crusader State. However, they also committed atrocities, slaying thousands of Jews and Muslims along the route. 
1187, Muslims led by Salah al-Din, Saladin, one of Islam's most fabled military leaders, retook Jerusalem and drove out the infidels. For the next hundred years, more crusades were launched from Europe, only to be defeated each time by Muslim forces. By 1300, the crusading mood of Christian Europe was exhausted. However, while Christian warriors had expected to find barbarians in the Middle East, they were instead shocked to discover an Islamic society vastly superior to European culture. Christian Constantinople falls to Islam. The Ottomans took political power and adopted Islam. The new Ottoman Muslim rulers waged jihad to expand the Ummah. On April 22, 1453, Sultan Mehmed II advanced on Constantinople with 100,000 soldiers and 125 ships. Two days later, the 1,100-year-old Christian city fell into Muslim hands. Mehmed II renamed himself the Conqueror and renamed Constantinople Istanbul. He had all elements of Christianity destroyed and made Istanbul the new capital of the Islamic Empire. The Ottomans conquered Serbia in 1459, Bosnia in 1463, and Herzegovina in 1483. The Ottoman forces brought important European cities under their control, including Athens, Malta, Cyprus, and Bulgaria, as well as the Balkans, Armenia, and Anatolia. Islam conquers India. Between the late 12th and 14th centuries, Muslim armies penetrated northwest India. Mahmud of Ghanzi, a Muslim who led many raids on northern India, wrote, The whole country of India is full of gold and jewels, aromatic plants and sugarcane. Since the inhabitants are chiefly infidels and idolaters, by the order of God and his prophet, it is right for us to conquer them. However, Islamic beliefs were completely incompatible with the indigenous Indian culture. Hindus believed in polytheism as part of divinity, while Muslims believed in only one God. Hindus believed in reincarnation, while Islam believed in only one life. Muslims abstained from alcohol, and Hindus did not. India had evolved a caste class system over hundreds of years, segmenting the population according to economic, social, and religious considerations. Muslims rejected the caste system, instead emphasizing the Islamic ideas of equality and brotherhood amongst Muslims. In the late 16th century, Muslim conquerors helped spread Islam deeper into India, as far as Indonesia. The greatest of them was an emperor named Akbar, who was known for building the great Taj Mahal. A new ch Your chain's off. We can fix it now? began in 1683, when the second Islamic advance on Vienna met with massive defeat. Next, the Russians took possession of Azov in 1696, their first Black Sea port. Three years later, the Ottoman Empire was defeated in Hungary by the Austrian Empire, and the Russian annexation of the Islamic land of Crimea in 1783 was another massive blow. In 1798, Napoleon Bonaparte commanded a French army that occupied Egypt, easily repelling Muslim forces. Though brief, Napoleon's appearance in Dar al-Islam had a huge impact. It was the first armed advance into the heart of Muslim territory by the West since the Crusades, and it set off a political, religious, and intellectual reaction that continues to this day.
economic decline. By the 18th century, Europeans were in the throes of a major industrial revolution, allowing them to overtake the world economically. The industrial revolution was spurred by technological advancements in mass production, steam engines, mechanized weaving machines, skilled labor, and the advent of capitalism and global exploration. For centuries, Muslim economies prospered from the production of agricultural goods and quality art, sold along Islam's extensive trade routes. Now European industry was manufacturing an endless amount of machine-fabricated products, cheaper than Muslim artisans could produce by hand. As competitive European products appeared in markets and shops throughout the world, Muslim businesses began failing, and the high standard of living once enjoyed by Muslims declined. Military defeat, the sick man of Europe. By 1877, Tsar Nicholas IV of Russia believed his forces were stronger than the Muslims. He publicly chided the Ottoman Empire as a dying man and a corpse, and he insisted the corpse should be divided up amongst major European powers. Next, Russia claimed Muslims were persecuting Christian Slavs in Bulgaria and invaded. At war's end, the Islamic Empire ceded Romania, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Cyprus, Montenegro, and Bulgaria. Within a few years, France invaded Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, while Egypt was conquered by Britain. Also, Italy invaded Libya, while Persia was divided by Russia and Britain into spheres of influence. By 1905, the Christian West had achieved military, political, and economic dominance over Muslim lands, and millions of believers were now under their control. Islam's conservative response. In the Islamic view, temporary cessation of jihad against the infidel is not cataclysmic. However, suffering defeat and losing territory with Muslims falling under infidel political control was an unknown, painful experience, difficult for Muslims to accept or understand, even to this day. Now Muslims were under the rule of powerful Christian armies, and Muslims throughout the Ummah were shocked. How could Christianity have overcome Islam? How could non-believers with an inferior religion control the true believers who had submitted to Islam? Islamic religious leaders and thinkers concluded that Islam had lost its way over the years from the straight path revealed by Muhammad. Only with return to authentic Islam would the Ummah recover God's approval and support. The Prophet Muhammad had reacted similarly to losses to the Meccans at the Battle of Uhud and thus helped to reinforce the idea that Muslims should respond to setbacks and challenges by looking inward to their ideology and roots for solutions. The cultural impact of the West. However, the Ottoman Sultan considered the defeats as only a military deficiency. If European military was superior, then learning European military techniques and purchasing their weapons technology would enable Muslims to one day expel the Christians and return Islam to glory. However, the import of European weapons necessitated the arrival of European ideas and institutions to support them, all of which shook the essence of the Ummah as much as the military defeat. Europeans brought economic and technical progress to Dar al-Islam building an infrastructure of highways, railroads, bridges, and ports, followed by the introduction of automobiles and electricity. The West also established new means of communication, newspapers, radio, and television, 
all of which disseminated Western culture and ideas. With newspapers came journalists, strange new characters in the Muslim world who challenged authority. The plan for modernization also required the introduction of Western administrative techniques and medical and educational systems into Dar al-Islam. Islamic reaction to the government reform. Peace with the satanic Dar al-Harb, extensive cooperation and cultural exchanges with Christendom, as well as adoption of Western methods of government, had far-reaching theological implications for Muslim thinkers. Europe was considered Dar al-Harb, the historic and perpetual enemy of Dar al-Islam, a permanent state of war with Dar al-Harb, and the impurity and inferiority of the Harbi were fundamental beliefs of the Ummah. While reformers advocated secularism and nationalism as the path to a revival, the Muslim religious class advocated exactly the opposite, that only a return to traditional Islamic doctrine would return the Ummah to glory, rather than incorporation of new ideas Thus, Muslim leaders considered the reform movement as nothing less than a declaration of war for the eradication of Islam. The emancipation of the Dini and European imposed reforms. Europeans and Americans arrived in the Middle East for military service or industrial endeavors, they revisited the roots of their faith in ancient Greece, the Holy Land, and the historic churches of Christianity. They were shocked at the disintegration of ancient Christian holy sites and seeing Christians living in poverty in what they considered a biased justice system. The Westerners demanded integration of tributaries into the Ummah as equal citizens to Muslims because of the need for complete manpower support and modernization, and from a desire to spread the concept of equality of all religions, considered a great accomplishment of 19th century Christian Europe. The Ottoman Sultan was forced to sign reforms, granting equal rights to minority religious groups. Islamic reaction to Dini emancipation. There was a tremendous difference between the Islamic concept of tolerance and protection of minorities and the European concept of equality. In fact, the inherent inequality between Muslims and Dini was an important structural aspect of daily life, relationships, and politics of Dar al-Islam, a society based on religious unity under Islam, with God as the sovereign. Despite this, Europe abolished a fundamental principle of Islamic society, its relationship with conquered non-believers, developed over thousands of years since the Dini of Kabar, and replaced it with Western values of secular nationalism and religious equality. Muslims, therefore, interpreted Western religious equality as subversive heresy forced upon them by Christendom in order to weaken Islam. Muslims also feared emancipation would sow the seeds of tributary nationalist uprisings as groups might try to claim back their independence and perhaps seek revenge on Muslims. Dimi Rebellions In fact, rebellions by Christian Dimi in the Balkans, Greece and Anatolia resulted in three million Muslims being expelled from Christian domination with over 250,000 killed in Bulgaria. 
Next, emboldened Armenian Christian groups demanded equal rights and independence from the Ulmah. At the onset of World War I, Armenians fought with the Russian army and collaborated with the British Navy. Historically for the Ulmah, treasonous behavior by a Dimi group under the protection of the Ulmah was grounds for expulsion or, as was the case of the Jews of Koriza, extermination. On June 13, 1915, the Ottoman government issued a decree. The Armenian societies now have dared join themselves to the enemies now at war with our state. All Armenians are obliged to leave within five days under the escort of the gendarmerie. The Christians were told they were being sent to new quarters for resettlement, and so began the death marches the Turks called caravans. A special organization of mobile killing squads decimated the caravans along the way, as well as ordinary Kurds. Railway cattle wagons were used to herd Christian men to the Syrian desert and placed in camps to suffer starvation and final pillage and death by local nomads. On September 15, 1915, the Turkish interior minister, Talat Pasha, cabled an instruction to his prefect in Aleppo. You have already been informed that the government has decided to destroy completely all the indicated persons living in Turkey. Their existence must be terminated, however tragic the measures taken may be, and no regard must be paid to either age or sex, or any scruples of conscience. The estimated final death toll, one and a half million. The seeds of the Jewish Holocaust. Having allied itself with Germany at the outset of World War I, German military officers and diplomats were present throughout Turkey. They did not participate in tributary massacres, but observed and reported, and would later bring their experiences to the Nazi regime. Franz von Papen served as chief of general staff of the 4th Turkish Army in Syria and Palestine. Later, he helped the Nazis seize power and served as Hitler's vice chancellor and president of Prussia. Lieutenant General Hans von Seat served as the chief of staff at Ottoman General Headquarters during 1970 and was instrumental in the re-emergence of the Wehrmacht in the 1930s and the formation of the SS units. Rudolf Hess joined the German army in Turkey in 1916. In 1940, he was appointed commandant of Auschwitz and he became deputy inspector of all Nazi concentration camps at SS headquarters in 1944. Dr. Max Erwin von Schubner Richter was German vice consul in Erzurum in 1915 and witnessed massacres of Armenians in Bitlis province. He submitted to Berlin 15 reports on the deportations and mass killings. Schubner Richter was introduced to Hitler by Alfred Rosenberg, the leading theorist of Nazi ideology, and became one of Hitler's closest advisors. Hitler stated to his commanding generals at Obersalzburg on August 22, 1939, who, after all, speaks today of the annihilation of the Armenians. Also serving in the Ottoman army in World War I was a young officer from Jerusalem, Amin al-Husseini. relationship with conquered non-believers developed over thousands of years since the Dini of Kevar and replaced it with Western values of secular nationalism and religious equality. 
Muslims, therefore, interpreted Western religious equality as subversive heresy forced upon them by Christendom in order to weaken Islam. Muslims also feared emancipation would sow the seeds of tributary nationalist uprisings as groups might try to claim back their independence and perhaps seek revenge on Muslims. Dimi Rebellions In fact, rebellions by Christian Dimi in the Balkans, Greece and Anatolia resulted in 3 million Muslims being expelled from Christian domination with over 250,000 killed in Bulgaria. Next, emboldened Armenian Christian groups demanded equal rights and independence from the Ulma. At the onset of World War I, Armenians fought with the Russian army and collaborated with the British Navy. Historically for the Ulma, treasonous behavior by a Dimi group under the protection of the Ulma was grounds for expulsion or, as was the case of the Jews of Koraiza, extermination. On June 13, 1915, the Ottoman government issued a decree. The Armenian societies now have dared join themselves to the enemies now at war with our state. All Armenians are obliged to leave within five days under the escort of the gendarmerie. The Christians were told they were being sent to new quarters for resettlement, and so began the death marches the Turks called caravans. A special organization of mobile killing squads decimated the caravans along the way, as well as ordinary Kurds. Railway cattle wagons were used to herd Christian men to the Syrian desert and placed in camps to suffer starvation and final pillage and death by local nomads. On September 15, 1915, the Turkish interior minister, Talat Pasha, cabled an instruction to his prefect in Aleppo. You have already been informed that the government has decided to destroy completely all the indicated persons living in Turkey. Their existence must be terminated, however tragic the measures taken may be, and no regard must be paid to either age or sex, or any scruples of conscience. The estimated final death toll, one and a half million. The seeds of the Jewish Holocaust. Having allied itself with Germany at the outset of World War I, German military officers and diplomats were present throughout Turkey. They did not participate in tributary massacres, but observed and reported, and would later bring their experiences to the Nazi regime. Franz von Papen served as chief of general staff of the 4th Turkish Army in Syria and Palestine. Later he helped the Nazis seize power and served as Hitler's vice chancellor and president of Prussia. Lieutenant General Hans von Seat served as the chief of staff at Ottoman General Headquarters during 1970 and was instrumental in the re-emergence of the Wehrmacht in the 1930s and the formation of the SS units. Rudolf Hess joined the German army in Turkey in 1916. In 1940, he was appointed Commandant of Auschwitz and he became Deputy Inspector of all Nazi concentration camps at SS headquarters in 1944. Dr. Max Erwin von Schubner-Richter was German vice counsel in Erzurum in 1915 and witnessed massacres of Armenians in Bitlis province. He submitted to Berlin 15 reports on the deportations and mass killings. Schubner-Richter was introduced to Hitler by Alfred Rosenberg, the leading theorist of Nazi ideology, and became one of Hitler's closest advisors. 
Hitler stated to his commanding generals at Obersalzburg on August 22, 1939, who, after all, speaks today of the annihilation of the Armenians. Also serving in the Ottoman army in World War I was a young officer from Jerusalem, Amin al-Husseini. The end of the empire. After World War I, the newly formed League of Nations assigned Great Britain, Palestine, Transjordan, and Iraq, and the French received Syria and Lebanon. Next, a strong military leader, Mustafa Kemal, who later became known as Ataturk, took power in Turkey. To save Turkey, he decided Islam must be separated completely from government and law. Turkish law was rewritten from Quranic law to incorporate the basic tenets of the legal systems found in Western Europe, and the Roman alphabet was substituted for Arabic script. Kemal declared civil rights for both men and women and established a democratic constitution that called for elections of a president and parliament. Legal and constitutional reform came with the establishment of Western law and courts of law. With new legal reforms, the lawyer came into existence, another strange character who wanted a hand in politics to challenge authority. Friday was no longer an official day of prayers. Polygamy was abolished. Women were not required to wear veils, and Muslim clothes were banned in public. Kemal ended the 1,300-year-old caliphate, sending Sultan Muhammad VI into exile. In 1923, Kemal declared an official end to the Islamic Empire. My friends, those who conquer by the sword are doomed to be overcome by those who conquer with the plow. That is what happened to the Ottoman Empire. The arm that wields the sword grows weary, but the arm that holds the plow grows daily stronger, and in growing stronger, becomes yet more the master and owner of the soil. The Jihad against Israel. Islam's Jewish problem re-emerges. The rise of Zionism. In 1882, 4,000 young Russian Jews arrived in Palestine, marking the beginning of the movement for Jewish nationalism, Zionism which envisioned the return of Jews to their ancient homeland and the re-establishment of a Jewish state. At the time, Jews numbered around 25,000, or only 10% of the total population of Palestine. Many immigrants were Jewish students and members of Hovavei Zion, lovers of Zion, who carried romantic, nationalist, and socialist ideals with them to the land of Zion. However, the young Russian Jews were not religious. Instead, they came to work the land and establish agricultural settlements. The Russian Jews migrated to Zion for the same reasons Theodor Herzl had written his famous book, Der Judenstaat, The Jewish State. Anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic laws in Russia, pogroms, and insecurity in Eastern Europe. In 1897, the first Zionist conference met in Basel, Switzerland, led by Theodor Herzl. Several waves of immigrants followed, bringing the Jewish population in Palestine to 90,000 by 1914. Several thousand Jews also arrived from Yemen, North Africa, and Central Asia. We're pursuing diplomacy to help bring peace to the Holy Land. Palestine and the Balfour Declaration 
The Romans had renamed Judea as Palestina when they conquered the area and exiled the Jews. After the Muslim conquests, the name Palestine was not used in the area itself, while Europeans used the term Holy Land. On November 2nd, 1917, the British government, in the Balfour Declaration, declared that it would facilitate the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. By 1929, the Jewish population in Palestine reached 160,000. By 1936, with Hitler and German anti-Semitism on the rise in Europe, Jews totaled 400,000, around 30% of the population. Misplacement of Western values. Labor Zionist leaders hoped to win Muslim support for a Jewish state, believing economic benefits and education were their goals. The Labor Zionists thought local Arabs saw themselves as a deprived economic working class, as they saw themselves. Clearly, the early Zionist pioneers did not understand Islam, the passions of the believers, nor their worldview. Arab opposition to Jewish settlement in Palestine became intense. Small bands of Arabs attacked individual Jews in Jewish settlements, becoming more organized and widespread over time. Major attacks occurred in 1929, including the Hebron Massacre, where 67 Jews were murdered, and the Safed Massacre, where 18 Jews were killed and 200 homes burned and looted. Islam versus Zionism. With the potential of Jewish statehood, the World Islamic Congress convened for the first time in Jerusalem on December 7, 1931. It was attended by 130 Muslim leaders from 22 Muslim countries. Chaired by the Mufti of Jerusalem, Haj Amin al-Husseini, they examined the extensive Jewish elements in the Quran, early Islamic history, and Islamic theology. These Muslim thinkers concluded the Islamic position toward a Jewish state should be one of total rejection. Zionism is ipso facto an aggression detrimental to Muslim well-being and that it is directly ousting Muslims from the control of Muslim land and Muslim holy places. The Congress also called for a boycott of the Jews in Palestine. In Islam, historic worldly events on a political level are an affirmation of faith. With Islam's initial statehood in Medina, the fulfillment of religion for Muslims was the dominance of Islam over non-believers. Therefore, a Jewish state was impossible, intolerable, dangerous, and totally incompatible with Islam and historic truths. Additionally, Zionists were considered by Muslims to be a tool of Western imperialism, using their most evil ancient enemy, the Jews, to penetrate and undermine Islam. The British Royal Commission. In 1936, the British Royal Commission on Palestine was established. Labor Zionist leaders Chaim Weizmann and David Ben-Gurion testified with little conviction for a Jewish state. Weizmann, the future first president of Israel, testified, If there is going to be a Jewish state one day, it will only be when we are worthy of it, and it may take hundreds of years. We realize we cannot have the whole of Palestine. David Ben-Gurion, the future first Prime Minister of Israel, proclaimed, There are other inhabitants in Palestine, and they have a right not to be at the mercy of the Jews. 
for the solution of the Jewish problem, it is not necessary that Palestine should constitute a separate state. Also, there are holy places in Palestine which should be placed under a higher supervision. The next to testify was Vladimir Zeev Jabotensky, the creator of the Jewish Legion in World War I, an apostle of militant Zionism. Jabotensky articulated the Jewish demand for statehood in terms of desperation and the need for immediate salvation for millions of doomed Jews in Europe. We are facing an elemental calamity. Three generations of Jewish thinkers and Zionists have come to the conclusion that the cause of our suffering is the very fact of the diaspora, the fact that we are everywhere a minority. <laughs> We have got to save millions, many millions, who are virtually knocking at the door of Palestine asking for admission. That is for salvation. We cannot concede anything. Yes, we do want a state. That is the normal condition for our people. I have the profoundest feeling for the Arab case. It is quite understandable that the Arabs of Palestine would also prefer Palestine to be the Arab state number four, number five, number six. But when the Arab claim is confronted with our Jewish demand to be saved, it is like the claims of appetite versus the claims of starvation. An American destroyer comes alongside a cruiser in the Suez Canal. King Abd Al-Aziz Ibn Saud met with President Roosevelt and British Colonel H.R.P. Dixon, who submitted the King's comments to the Royal Commission on Palestine. Today, we and our subjects are deeply troubled over this Palestine question and the strange hypnotic influence which the Jews, a race accursed by God according to his holy book, and destined to final destruction and eternal damnation, appear to wield over them and the English people. The Quran contains God's own word and divine ordinance, and we commend His Majesty's government to read and carefully peruse that portion which deals with the Jews, and especially what is to be their fate in the end. Your government must at once further restrict all further immigration of Jews into Palestine. If I, an ignorant Bedouin Arab of Arabia, can see as clearly as I see the sun rise that the proposed partition of Palestine is wicked and wrong in God's sight, surely the more clever Western politicians, if they fear God at all, can see this also. Therefore, there is no other side to this question except bargaining with Satan. Finally, Hajj Amin al-Husseini appeared before the Royal Commission. Lord Peel asked, You want completely to stop Jewish immigration? What do you want to do with the 400,000 Jews there at present? The Mufti answered, Muslim rule has always been known for its tolerance. According to history, Jews had a most quiet and peaceful residence under Arab rule with complete freedom and liberty. As an Islamic leader, Husseini believed that Jewish political independence did not fit into Islamic society, as Islam's natural socio-religious order allowed only for a Muslim-Jewish relationship of protector and tributary. Just as was the case with the Armenian Christians, 
the Jews' refusal to accept tributary status was grounds for physical termination, not for independence. against the Jews. In 1939, Great Britain acquiesced to the Muslim arguments and issued a white paper limiting Jewish immigration to Palestine to only 10,000 per year for five years. Any additional Jewish immigration was to be made only with Arab consent. With the white paper, Great Britain abandoned the idea of the Balfour Declaration of helping to create a Jewish homeland and cut off one of the few routes of escape for Jews of Europe who were being persecuted and exterminated by the Nazis. Despite the British blockade, the Jews continued with illegal immigration by sea. On November 28, 1941, Hajj Amin al-Husseini submitted a draft to Hitler, asking him to declare that Germany and Italy recognize the right of the Arab countries to solve the question of the Jewish elements, as the Jewish question was solved in Germany and Italy. Later in the war, the Mufti went to work for Nazi Germany as a propagandist and a recruiter of Muslim volunteers for the German armed forces, organizing and recruiting Bosnian Muslims into several divisions of the Waffen-SS. While speaking on Radio Berlin, Al-Husseini said, Arabs rise as one man and fight for your sacred rights. Kill the Jews wherever you find them. This pleases God, history, and religion. God is with you. At the Nuremberg war crimes trials in 1946, Adolf Eichmann's deputy, Dieter Wilensky, testified, the Mufti was one of the initiators of the systematic extermination of European Jewry and had been a collaborator and advisor of Eichmann and Himmler in the execution of this plan. He was one of Eichmann's best friends and had constantly incited him to accelerate the extermination measures. I heard him say, accompanied by Eichmann, he had visited incognito the gas chambers of Auschwitz. The establishment of Israel. In 1947, the Palestine question came before the General Assembly of the United Nations. But the Arabs of Palestine cannot go into any political discussion on the basis of any Jewish state in Palestine. Surely the Jewish people is no less deserving than other peoples. Are the Arabs responsible for that problem? Have they acted or worked or helped in creating such a problem? The Jewish people were your allies in the war and join their sacrifices to yours to achieve a common victory. The admission of the applicant is taken with the highest consummation of injustice. Dr. Weitzman's first name was C-H-A-I-M. And I didn't know how to pronounce it, so I called him Cham. We had a long, long conversation. And he explained the situation from his viewpoint. And I listened to him very carefully. When we were through, I said, all right, 
You two Jews have put it over on me, and I'm glad you have. The United States delegation supports the basic principles of the unanimous recommendations and the majority plan which provides for petition and immigration. The New Zealand delegation will, of course, of course, vote for the admission of Israel. Afghanistan, no. Argentina, abstention. France, yes. The resolution of the Duck Committee for Palestine was adopted by 33 votes, 13 against, 10 abstentions. On May 14, 1948, the British government terminated its Palestine mandate, and on May 15, 1948, David Ben-Gurion declared the independent state of Israel. Eastward, the Arab Legion poised for invasion on the Transjordan border. King Abdullah reviewed a brigade of reinforcements from Iraq. Immediately, a coalition of armies from Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and Lebanon invaded the new Jewish state. The war was marked by long periods of fighting and temporary ceasefires, with hostilities officially ending in January 1949. At that time, Israel held 5,600 square miles of territory allotted in the UN partition plan, plus an additional 2,500 square miles while Transjordan held the eastern sector of Jerusalem and the West Bank, and Egypt held the Gaza Strip. The Muslim states refused to negotiate peace or recognize Israel's right to exist, and remained in a state of war with Israel. Islam's Jewish problem re-emerges. Muslims reacted to the Jewish victory with shock. It caused a theological challenge of the greatest scope imaginable. Islamic-Jewish military conflict had now reoccurred with opposite results. While the Muslims of the first Ummah in Medina had defeated the Jews, the Jews had now achieved political independence, overcome Muslims in battle, and ruled over Muslims in a land that was taken by Dar al-Islam at the outset of the great conquests. The Jews were known to be weak, cowardly, impure, and condemned by God to humiliation. Such people were not supposed to defeat them. A Jewish state was the ultimate insult and degradation, whereby protectors became tributaries, and tributaries became protectors. While Islam's initial victory over the Jews in the time of Muhammad was a sign of coming conquests and divine vindication, it was feared their defeat by the Jews might signal the final demise after a decline of 300 years.
Hence, Muslims considered the founding of the state of Israel to be a Nakba, a catastrophe of historic proportions. Within a few years, every Arab ruler whose army was defeated by the Jews was removed or overthrown. King Abdullah, who was 69, was shot as he was going to pray at the Mosque of Omar. From Cairo come these first authentic pictures of the bloodless coup by which the army took over control of Egypt. Islamic anti-Jewish doctrines on the Dini state. Israel's existence recalled Islam's age-old Jewish problem, first felt by Muhammad in the early years of the Ummah in Medina. How could Islam thrive and find salvation if inferior Jews were politically powerful? And it required the same solution, eradication of political independence of Jews and the domination of the Ummah over them. During the 1950s and 1960s, the World Islamic Conference and Islamic thinkers continued to formulate Islamic anti-Jewish doctrine from Islam's historic trials with Jews and brought it into modern focus. The conflict was described as Islamic truth versus Jewish evil, the root of all evil being Zionism and the state of Israel. Arabic translations of Western anti-Semitic doctrines, particularly the classic anti-Semitic fiction alleging a Jewish plot for world domination, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, helped advance the major theme of Jews as lowly, miserable, conniving, cowardly, and vile characters. As such, Israel was totally inferior, unnatural and absurd, and with no legal or moral right to exist. Saeed Kitab, an early writer of Islamic doctrine on the Jews in Israel, authored an influential work in the early 1950s entitled Our Struggle with the Jews. Kitab wrote, The struggle between Islam and the Jews continues and is destined to continue in the future because the Jews will be satisfied only with the destruction of this religion. This thinking was totally adopted by Muslim intellectuals, Arab governments, the Arab League, religious leaders, and their media, and a system-wide, culture-wide anti-Israel formula took root in all aspects of public life of Muslim countries. These attitudes were taught and promoted as standardized formula in education and literature and political ideology among all leaders and masses of the Muslim world. One, Israel is a threat to Islamic identity because of its Western culture and ideas. Two, the Zionists and the West wish to strip Islam of traditional values and replace them with Western and secular values. Three, Israel was founded due to Western guilt over the Holocaust and exists only out of Western assistance. Four, Jerusalem must be reconquered by Muslims in order to restore the Middle East, as in the time of the Prophet Muhammad. Five, racist Western secular Jews invaded Palestine and drove out the indigenous Palestinian Arabs and they now discriminate against the remaining Muslims as well as Jews from Arab lands. Six, Jews have no historical ties to the Middle East. Modern Jews are descended from the Central Asian tribe called the Khazars, whose government adopted Judaism in the Middle Ages. And since Jews had no place in history, they therefore have no rights to exist as part of geography. Seven, Israel and Jews have an evil nature. اینا یهودی نیستن بلکه یک مشت جنایتکار فاسدند که از نام یهودیت سوء استفاده میکنند 
ادهی از یهودی ها را در کوره ها سوزاندند چرا باید ملت فلسطین تقاس این جنایت های شما را بدهد سیونیست ها فقط با مسلمون ها و اسلام مخالف نیستند اونها سلطه بر همه جهان را میخواهند Economic and Political Jihad Next, Muslim countries instituted economic and political, social and cultural warfare on the new Jewish state. In 1952, an economic boycott office was established in Damascus, officially as a response to Israel's refusal to allow Palestinian Arabs, who had left during the fighting of 1948, to return, while Israel argued it accepted about the same number of Jewish refugees from Arab countries. The boycott had two official levels. Primary, no direct trade between Arab countries and Israel. Secondary, refusal by Arab states to trade with certain companies, which reinforced the political and military potential of Israel. Politically, Muslim countries waged a campaign to isolate the Jewish state. In international forums, they vilified Israel as a scapegoat, responsible for various conflicts within the Muslim world and other regions, using the same terminology applied to Jews in Muhammad's time, arrogant, stubborn, and insolent. Meanwhile, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser spoke of establishing a great Arab nation from Africa to India. Though Nasser promoted Arab nationalism as a secular idea, it was in fact based on many Islamic ideals. Central to Nasser's popular message was hatred for Israel and his passion for eliminating it. In 1955, he said, To the disaster of Palestine, there is no parallel in human history. The mention of Palestine is sufficient to remind every Arab, indeed, every free man, of the greatest international crime that has been committed in the entire history of mankind. In 1964, the Palestine Liberation Organization was founded by the Arab League in Egypt and in 1965 began attacks against Israel as a precursor to the next military jihad. The Six-Day War On May 16, 1967, Nasser evicted the United Nations forces stationed on the Egyptian-Israeli border, removing the international buffer between Egypt and Israel. On May 22, Egypt announced a blockade of the Straits of Tehran, blocking the Israeli port of Elat. On May 30, President Nasser and King Hussein of Jordan signed a mutual defense pact, followed on June 4 by a defense pact between Egypt and Iraq. The Muslim states began mobilizing their troops. Finally, Israel launched a preemptive strike against Egypt on June 5, 1967, retaking the Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip. Jordan attacked Israel and lost the West Bank and the old city of Jerusalem. Especially painful to Muslims was the loss of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. 
Israel went on to capture the Golan Heights from Syria. The war ended on June 10th. Israeli Chief of Staff Moshe Dayan was widely credited with Israel's success due to photos of him marching through Jerusalem. However, Dayan, in fact, opposed preempting the war, as well as the offensive against Syria to take the Golan Heights. A few months later, meeting in Khartoum, Sudan, the Muslim heads of state and Muslim leaders, including Haj Amin al-Husseini, declared that their formal position was no peace, no recognition, and no negotiation with Israel. The 1967 defeat, Islamic reaction. The defeat of the 1967 Six-Day War stunned the Islamic world. Muslims called it the Second Nakba. Starting in 1948, Arab nationalists had seen the problem of Israel as primarily military and reacted just as the Turks did after their failure to capture Vienna. They chose to build armies with foreign, in this case Soviet, assistance to prepare for war. Despite this, the contemptible Dimi Jews had defeated armies of Muslim states, which had superior numbers of troops and weapons. Profound theological questions again arose as to the future of Dar al-Islam. Al-Azhar University in Cairo has been the center of Islamic higher education since the 18th century. Al-Azhar University has a status not dissimilar to the Vatican, despite the lack of centralized Islamic authority or an official Islamic clergy. Its opinions represent official Islamic positions on all matters. Over the centuries, Islam always employed a furious backlash of traditionalism whenever the Ummah seemed to stray from the straight path. Al-Azhar concluded, the sacred duty of every Muslim is twofold, to thwart the destructive falsehoods spread by Zionism and to work for the triumph of Islam and the liberation of Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. Islamic consensus now held that an unending jihad to eliminate Israel was required. The thinking was quite simple. Islam was in crisis due to internal decay and invasion by the West. The number one enemy in this crisis was the Jews, who presented a danger to Islam on every level, military, religious, social, and political. In order to recover from the crisis, the elimination of Jewish political independence and return of the Jews to Dini status would be paramount to the success of rebuilding the Ummah and reaffirming God's covenant with believers. The Palestine Liberation Organization. In 1969, Mufti Haj Amin al-Husseini's nephew, Muhammad Abdel Rauf Arafat al-Qadwa al-Husseini, was elected chairman of the PLO. A former Egyptian army officer, he became known to the world as simply Yasser Arafat. The PLO became more of a factor and espoused a new method of worldwide commando action based on the historic Islamic ideology of jihad to fight the Zionist enemy. Arafat declared, the liberation of Palestine and putting an end to Zionist penetration into Muslim states is one of the duties of the Muslim world. We must fight a jihad against the Zionist enemy who covets not only Palestine, but the whole Arab region, including its holy places. The Yom Kippur War. The next military jihad to liberate Jerusalem occurred on October...
who covets not only Palestine, but the whole Arab region, including its holy places. Yam Abdel Rauf Arafat al-Qadwa al-Husseini was elected chairman of the PLO. A former Egyptian army officer, he became known to the world as simply Yasser Arafat. The PLO became more of a factor and espoused a new method of worldwide commando action based on the historic Islamic ideology of jihad to fight the Zionist enemy. Arafat declared the liberation of Palestine and putting an end to Zionist penetration into Muslim states is one of the duties of the Muslim world. We must fight a jihad against the Zionist enemy who covets not only Palestine but the whole Arab region, including its holy places. The Yom Kippur War. The next military jihad to liberate Jerusalem occurred on October 6, 1973. Equipped with Soviet weapons, Muslim soldiers from Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, and Palestine began the onslaught on the Jewish holy day of Yom Kippur. In early October 1973, Israeli intelligence had advised Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir that Israel would be attacked. She telephoned U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who ordered her not to preempt the attack, and Meir acquiesced. In the first few days of the war, Israel lost half of its 1,700 tanks and 51 fighter jets, more than 10% of its air force. Defense Minister Moshe Dayan broke down and cried and suggested that Israel surrender to Egypt. The next day, Prime Minister Meir dispatched an urgent message to President Nixon, indicating Israel's situation was critical and asked for massive airlifts of American military equipment. Also that day, the chairman of Exxon, Mobil, Texaco, and Standard Oil contacted President Nixon with an urgent message that King Faisal stated an oil embargo would result if America assisted Israel. Richard Nixon feared Soviet domination of the Middle East if Israel was eliminated. Finally, giant American starlifters executed a massive military airlift through the Azores Islands, since no African or European government would allow their airports to be used for American planes to refuel. Only the American resupply and bravery in the field by Israeli General Ariel Sharon and his forces saved the Jewish state by trapping the Egyptian Third Army west of the Suez Canal and opening the road to Cairo. In January 1974, Henry Kissinger's shuttle diplomacy arranged troop disengagement agreements between Israel and Egypt and Israel and Syria. Egypt maintained a strip of territory on the east bank of the Suez Canal and the Syrians a portion of the Golan Heights. And the Arab world ended its oil embargo. After consolidating their gains through Kissinger's diplomacy, Muslim countries pressed hard in diplomatic warfare to weaken Israel's international diplomatic position. Under pressure, most African and third world countries broke diplomatic relations with Israel. Meanwhile, the PLO continued its campaign against Israel worldwide, including the deaths of 21 schoolchildren in Ma'alot in northern Israel in May 1974.
Mr. President, I have come today bearing an olive branch and a gun. Don't let the olive branch fall from my hand. In 1975, the Soviet Muslim Third World Bloc of the United Nations succeeded in passing the Zionism Equals Racism General Assembly Resolution, a new kind of diplomatic offensive to contain, reduce, and eventually eliminate the Jewish tributary state was now in the offing. The diplomatic strategy against Israel, Sadat's peace, based on justice. Sadat's strategy. On November 19, 1977, Egyptian President Mohammed Anwar Sadat made an unprecedented historic visit to Israel, marking the first time an Arab leader made significant public contact with the Jewish state. Israelis and Western observers viewed Sadat's mission to Israel as a fundamental ideological breakthrough. However, Sadat did not really break with the past. This is a sacred mission for me. A devout Muslim, Sadat did not give any legitimacy to Israel, as no Muslim could ever truly accept Jewish sovereignty. Sadat simply chose a different path to achieve the Islamization of Palestine by exercising a pre-existing Arab diplomatic strategy that would, through several diplomatic stages, eliminate Jewish state. The roots of the diplomatic strategy against Israel. Sadat's diplomatic strategy was not new. In 1947, Jordan's King Abdallah had proposed acceptance of Israel on the UN terms because Muslims would retain a huge geographical advantage, allowing them to ultimately defeat the Jews at a later time. Abdallah was correct. The pursuit of a military-only solution since 1948 resulted in the Jews gaining much more territory in each war. After the 1967 military failure, Cecil Hourani, an advisor to Tunisia's president, presented three objectives that were later wholly adopted by Egypt. One, containment of Israel territorially and demographically as a basis for two, weakening and de-Zionizing Israel as preparation for three, the final transformation of Israel from a sovereign Jewish state into a Muslim state. Menachem Begin's Psychology. Sadat is an implacable enemy of Israel. He is no fool, but he is an enemy. In May 1977, Israelis had swept the long ruling Labour Party out of power and Herut leader Menachem Begin a disciple of Vladimir Zeev Jabotinsky became prime minister. What occupied territories? If you mean Judea, Samaria, and the Gaza Strip, they are liberated territories. Begin had been the leader of the Ergun Jewish underground that fought the British for independence in the years prior to Jewish statehood. The Ergun had bombed the British headquarters in the King David Hotel in Jerusalem in 1946. Begin's past had made him a target of accusations of being a terrorist by Israeli Labor Party politicians over the years. As such, he was psychologically predisposed to wanting to find a way to vindicate his past as well as triumph over his detractors. After the election, the defense minister, Moshe Dayan, 
appointing him foreign minister. Longtime Harut Party stalwart and author, Shmuel Katz, another Jabotinsky disciple, was passed over. Ezra Weitzman was made defense minister. Begin, Weitzman, and Dayan then engaged in secret negotiations with Boutros Ghali of Egypt, promising to give back all of the Sinai in exchange for peace. Sadat's Knesset speech, Peace Based on Justice. Before his speech to the Israeli Knesset, Anwar Sadat attended prayers at the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. <laughs> In his speech to the Israeli Knesset, Anwar Sadat invoked the Islamic concept of peace based on justice using the phrase 15 times. Justice, from the Islamic point of view, would require Israel to surrender all territory it gained in the 1967 conflict. Sadat used the name of God 25 times, suggesting that Muslim rule was the proper place for religious toleration. Further, Sadat alludes to the illegitimacy of Jewish political independence anywhere in Palestine. The Islamic definitions of peace and justice would contain and minimize Israel geographically, making it indefensible, while Israel would lose its Jewish character due to millions of returning Muslims, thereby defeating Israel by means of diplomacy. In a statement equivalent to the Islamic offer of protection to Dimi, standardized in 635 by Khalid ibn al-Walid, once an enemy is defeated, Sadat offers,
peace accords. If the president is gracious enough to invite me to Cairo, I shall continue that. Really, I'm planning to invite him to Sinai. Thank you, sir. To who? Uh, Sinai. Well, why sure. I invite you? <laughs> Eventually, formal Egyptian-Israeli negotiations ensued at Camp David under the guidance of U.S. President Jimmy Carter. A significant achievement in the cause of peace. The Jewish people suffered much, too much, and therefore peace to us is a striving coming innermost from our heart and soul. Peace now celebrates a great victory. To Israel and the West, the Camp David Agreement meant Western peace, while Egypt saw the agreement only as the first stage to the transformation of Israel. The signing of the framework for the comprehensive peace settlement has a significance far beyond the event. It signals the emergence of a new peace initiative in the weeks ahead. Important decisions have to be made if we are to proceed on the road to peace. It calls for the full withdrawal of Israeli forces from the Sinai. In return for peace, Israel relinquished to Egypt the Sinai Peninsula, all the military airfields, oil wells, and civilian settlements it had built there. It calls for the establishment of normal, peaceful relations between the two countries, including diplomatic relations. To Israel and the West, Diplomatic exchanges and visits to Egypt implied recognition of Jewish statehood, while Egypt saw it as only an insignificant formality. For each stage of withdrawal Israel completed, Egypt would grant another degree of normalization on the road to returning sovereignty to Islam. If Israel acted differently, degrees of normalization would be withdrawn. And finally, Sadat never called for peace or sulha, reconciliation with the Jews. He only proclaimed, no more war. Let there be no more wars or bloodshed between Arabs and Israelis. Let there be no more suffering or denial of rights. Muslim diplomatic advantage. Muslims had 1,400 years of experience in dealing with Jews and a set of religious principles and historic precedents to rely on. However, on the Israeli side, there was and is no explicit ideology of how to deal with Muslims since Judaic scriptures and codes of law predate Islam. As a result, many Israelis, Israeli political parties, and Jews worldwide supported Sadat's diplomatic strategy against Israel, believing it meant true peace in Western terms. The Treaty of Al-Hudabiyah revisited. President Anwar Sadat of Egypt. Al-Azhar University issued a statement on the Camp David Accords that appeared on the front page of Al-Afram, the main Egyptian newspaper. 
Since the period of prophecy, Islam has given clear examples concerning treaties signed between Muslims and their enemies. The Quran commanded us to make peace with the enemy when the Imam sees that there is some advantage for the Muslims in it. As evidence for this, all legal traditions adduced in the agreement of Al-Hadibaya, in which Muhammad made an accommodation with the enemy. Israelis and Westerners regarded this as an endorsement of the agreement between Egypt and Israel. In fact, Al-Hadibaya's main lesson is that patience and use of temporary treaties with the infidel is an acceptable path to ultimate Islamic victory. Sadat's legacy in Egypt. Meanwhile, Sadat became increasingly unpopular in Egypt. Sadat subjected his people to a number of referendums that he won by 99% of the vote, including the Camp David Peace Treaty and the Law of Shame, which made broadcasting words that could offend the dignity of the state punishable. In September 1981, Sadat reacted to increasing criticism by jailing 1,500 political opponents. The Muslim Brotherhood suffered the most arrests. Sadat was acting more and more Western, wearing Italian suits, British hats, and smoking a pipe. Along with the overtures to Israel, Sadat made anti-religious statements such as politics are affairs of the state, not religion. And he criticized the role of Islam in Iran's revolution of 1979. This is disgraceful, really. I was myself, I was a secretary general of the Muslim Congress at one time. This, uh, uh, putting the name Islamic revolution is a crime. Attending a military parade in Cairo, Anwar Sadat was assassinated by members of the Islamist al-Jihad movement. At the same time, coordinated Islamist uprisings occurred in several parts of Egypt, but were brought under control. A large number of Jewish and Western leaders, including three former United States presidents, attended Sadat's funeral, while the only Muslim countries represented were Sudan, Oman, and Somalia. Egypt's 43 million people celebrated the Feast of Sacrifice, Eid al-Adha, as if nothing had happened. There was no grieving in the streets as when Nasser died. In the rest of the Islamic world, jubilation greeted Sadat's passing. The Israelis were left to wonder, what would become of their peace with Sadat? This is our word by Dr. Ayman Zahri. Who are we? Why? Did they bring us here? We are Muslims. We are Muslims who believe in their religion, in its broad meaning, as both an ideology and practice. We tried our best to establish this Islamic state and Islamic society. La ilaha diplomatic strategy against Israel continues. Today he is making his first presidential address in the United States, the president of Egypt, Hosni Mubarak.
the core of the Middle East problem is the Palestinian question. Before it appeared in the 40s, there was no dispute between Arabs and Jews. Notions of racial or religious prejudice are aligned to our culture. Muslims and the Christians of the Middle East never had any problems coexisting with their Jewish neighbors at all. Worldview, our topic, prospects for peace in the Middle East. Joining us for this session, special guest, Boutrous Ghali, Minister of State for Foreign Affairs of Egypt. When President Sadat went to Jerusalem in November 77, the purpose of his visit was to achieve a comprehensive peace in the Middle East. We may achieve the solution in stages that rather than through a one-step approach. This is the philosophy of the Camp David approach for a comprehensive settlement for the Middle East problem. We have achieved the first purpose. We recovered the whole Sinai uh, with the village of Yamid, with the three airports, and with Sharmishi. Uh, we accepted the idea of establishing a system of full autonomy in the West Bank and Gaza as a transitional formula and not a final solution. In essence, this formula aims at terminating Israeli occupation and control. The revolt of Islam, Oslo, Jewish denial, Islamic revival. The Lebanon War. Meanwhile, the military jihad against Israel continued from the north as the PLO strengthened its mini-state in Lebanon, escalating artillery and cross-border attacks on civilians in northern Israel. They will have to take care that all the terrorists leave Beirut and Lebanon. None of them will be left. Because this is the only guarantee that we shall have the peace not only in our time, but also for generations to come. In June 1982, five celebrities are left in the Special Forces season finale. Israel launched Operation Peace for Galilee. At first, a plan for a limited incursion to wipe out PLO positions in southern Lebanon. Defense Minister Ariel Sharon soon envisioned a wider-reaching plan. Eradication of the PLO in Lebanon, eviction of Syrian forces, and the creation of a Christian-dominated Lebanon, which would sign a peace treaty with Israel and permanently secure Israel's northern border. Some of this was achieved. PLO forces were evicted from Beirut, and PLO headquarters was transferred to Tunisia, aided by the U.S. government. The rest of the plan failed when Christian leader Bashir Jamal was assassinated. The decline of the PLO. Next, the new Palestinian Islamist group, Hamas, made great inroads by sermoning in mosques and providing social services in refugee camps. In December 1987, Muslims erupted into a popular uprising against Israel known as the Intifada. At first spontaneous, 
the Intifada developed into a well-organized revolt of violence and civil disobedience, including attacks on Israeli troops with stones, Molotov cocktails, hand grenades, and firearms. Arafat and the PLO faded as symbols for the young protesters whose leaders were Islamist. With little to lose, Arafat joined the diplomatic strategy against Israel. The PLO parliament, the PNC, had accepted two states, Palestine state and Jewish state. As a result, Yasser Arafat lost legitimacy with Muslims as he was embraced by the United States. Then, in 1991, the PLO supported Iraq in the Gulf War, causing it to lose popularity among Western governments. That same year, remaining PLO forces in southern Lebanon were driven out by the Syrian-backed Lebanese army. The PLO, Israel's most implacable and dedicated enemy, had become a non-factor, irrelevant to Palestinians, out of favor with the West, exiled from the region, discredited and defeated. The Oslo Accords. From these depths of despair, the new Israeli labor government rescued the PLO and Yasser Arafat and proclaimed them to be their new partners for peace. Israel was now in complete agreement with the diplomatic strategy against Israel, believing it would achieve Western peace. Israel must move on all the fronts. You know, on all fronts, we have to be on the, on the giveaway side. The Jordanian front. To the king too, we should have to return some land here and there. The Palestinian front. The EU we should return. In Lebanon, we should have to withdraw. The Syrian front. In Syria, we should have to withdraw. Let all of us turn from bullets to ballots, from guns to shovels. We shall pray with you. For Arafat, the Oslo Accords and all it entailed was a lifesaver. Israel made staggering concessions to the PLO, as Israel gave the PLO and Arafat control of Gaza and half the West Bank, released hundreds of security prisoners, and armed a Palestinian police force. Israel's resurrection of the PLO included providing a local land base of operations, an eager population of new recruits, arms, international status, and infrastructure, including safe passage, water, airport, electricity, TV and radio stations. Sticky matters, such as the fate of Jerusalem and the PLO's demand for return of millions of Palestinian Arab refugees into Israel proper, would be left as negotiable. Meanwhile, Israeli Foreign Minister Shimon Peres lobbied hard and successfully for the United States and Europeans to donate hundreds of millions of dollars to Arafat's new Palestinian Authority. Given the opportunity, would the PLO pursue peace in Western terms or simply carry on its jihad from its unbelievably lucky new advantageous position? <laughs> Right-wing opposition. The Israeli left's enthusiasm for the Oslo Accords was in stark contrast to the Israeli right, 
who saw the agreement as a colossal and fatal error that would place Israel on a path of war and not peace. From our point of view, the PLO is not partner for any peace process. Cannot trust. They are criminals, they are liars, they are enemies of our people. אני שמעתי הרבה דברי הכפשה ובלע כאלה על עם ישראל יוצאים מפיהם של אויבי ישראל, אבל לשמור אותם מפיך, מר פרס? On the right, it was argued that any PLO control of territory would simply turn into a new terrorist base for launching attacks on Israel. Misunderstanding and denial. In the face of such concern from the right, Perez and Rabin stated, We will make a peace of the brave. All we are saying is give peace a chance. You can only make peace with enemies. If it doesn't work, the whole world will support us. Most of Israel agreed and supported peace. <laughs> sometimes that you made a mistake in agreeing to Oslo. Arafat answered, No, no. Allah's messenger, Muhammad, accepted the Al-Hadabaya peace treaty, and Saladin accepted the peace agreement with Richard the Lionhearted. While Arafat became less diplomatic, the Israeli misunderstanding turned into denial. Hey, bingo. You missed the girl. so high. The jihad continues. Meanwhile, the new Palestinian Islamic fundamentalist group, Hamas, expanded under the protection of the PLO in Gaza and carried out suicide bombings throughout Israel. Rabin stated, the Israeli dead in these attacks were part of the price for peace. Hoping to end Rabin's policies, a Jewish extremist assassinated him in 1995. Your prime minister was a martyr for peace. Surely we must learn from his martyrdom. The rightist Likud party, led by Benjamin Netanyahu, 
won the next election on a promise to revoke the Oslo Accords, but instead simply continued them at a slower pace. Having accomplished nothing, the Likud was replaced by the Labour Party. This led to the Camp David talks, which broke down in August 2000, when Israel agreed to everything except for the right of return of millions of Arabs into Israel proper. So together with Hamas, Arafat and the PLO resumed the military jihad. Islamist al-Qaeda's attacks of 9-11-2001 focused on the tallest buildings and symbols of the West's superiority and actually had nothing to do with a war against the West. It was part of the internal battle for Islam, meant to manipulate a military reaction from America, then use that reaction to invigorate the masses to revolt against their secular governments. With vigilance, determination, courage we will defeat the enemies of freedom the united states fell into the trap invading afghanistan and then iraq for america 9-11 was more than a tragedy it changed the way we look at the world even more important al-qaeda hoped the 9-11 attacks would convince america to re-examine and change its middle east policies the status quo in the middle east before september the 11th was dangerous and unacceptable so we're pursuing a new strategy. America has committed its influence in the world to advancing freedom. We must seek stability through a free and just Middle East. And the government should continue to move forward with other reforms Due to the misunderstanding of 9-11, America played into the hands of the Islamists by advocating democratic reforms across the Middle East. Citizens have voted in municipal elections in Saudi Arabia and in multi-party presidential elections in Yemen and Egypt. Thus, the 9-11 attacks were successful only because America was unwittingly used militarily and politically to help further the Islamist agenda and Islam's revival across Dar al-Islam. In November 2004, Yasser Arafat died, and the United States insisted on Palestinian elections. With our help, the people of the Middle East are now stepping forward to claim their freedom. Predictably, in January 2005, the Islamist Hamas party won the vote and chose an Islamist prime minister. In fact, Wherever free elections are held in Dar al-Islam, Muslims choose Islamist parties, which Muslims believe is the route to revival of their society. Chamberlain, a sincere man who abhors war, flies to Munich to meet Hitler. 
They are joined by French Premier Deladier and Benito Mussolini. Chamberlain tells his people, I believe it is peace in our time. Yesterday afternoon, I had a long talk with Herr Hitler. It was a frank talk, but it was a friendly one. And I feel satisfied now that each of us fully understands what is in the mind of the other. Here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. of war is the failure of diplomacy, which is the result of misunderstanding. Islam is undergoing a historic revival after 300 years of decline, returning to its historic formula for success, whereby Islam and religion govern the Ummah. On its road to revival, Islam must reacquire Palestine to redeem itself from westernization and the humiliation of a demi state. Therefore, western peace between Israel and Islam is unattainable. Peace can only be achieved in Islamic terms, peace with justice, which requires the eradication of political independence of Jews and return of the Jews to demi status and the domination of the Ummah over them. territory under the Camp David and Oslo Accords would gain it world support. This despite Israel's prior 50-year history of world support, which had seen most Western countries collude in some way in the Holocaust. An arms embargo on Israel during Israel's War of Independence, the arming of Muslim countries, the lack of intervention in 1967 when destruction was imminent the obstruction of the U.S. arms resupply in 1973, the U.N. Zionism-is-Racism resolution, and eager assistance to Iraq and Iran and others in obtaining weapons of mass destruction. But Machiavelli observed that states survive on respect, not love. While in world affairs, the smart, the strong, and the agile succeed. 
while the naive and weak fail. The Islamist strategic agenda. Iran, Syria, and other Muslim states have acquired strategic missiles and weapons of mass destruction, believing that gaining the upper hand in the balance of power with Israel will precipitate Israel's destruction and Islam's revival. Iran believes Israel cannot absorb a major blow in its heart, the greater Tel Aviv area, and survive the civilian casualties and destruction of infrastructure. The mere capability of Iranian missiles to lay waste to Tel Aviv would create a strategic umbrella preventing Israel from using its superior strategic assets in a conventional war. With Israeli missiles neutralized, in any war, Muslim countries would overwhelm Israel with their superior numbers, conventional armor, and short-range missiles. If Israel does use its non-conventional missiles, Israel would receive a fatal missile attack, while Dar al-Islam would only suffer collateral damage. Either way, Islam would reclaim Palestine for the Ummah. The coming war. The world now faces a grave threat from the radical regime in Iran and we must not allow Iran to develop a nuclear weapon. The coming war is likely to be ignited in several ways. The United States cannot accept a nuclear-armed Iran, nor will Israel. An attack on Iran is likely, and Iran has promised severe retaliation against Israel, U.S. bases, and U.S. interests throughout the Middle East if its nuclear facilities are attacked. Islamist uprisings in Egypt, Turkey, Lebanon, and Saudi Arabia would raise regional tensions to the point where all countries mobilize their armed forces. Israel would likely be drawn into any regional war that could involve serious unrest in Kurdistan, with Iran and Turkey moving into Iraq, or an Iranian advance on western-backed Azerbaijan. Israel would be attacked to achieve certain war aims, as Saddam Hussein demonstrated by attacking Israel in 1991. Ballistic missiles have a very short preparation time, allowing a surprise attack to destroy vital assets such as airfields and command and control stations. Due to Israel's small number of major targets, Israel could be defeated by a surprise ballistic missile attack. Many in this chamber understand that America must not fail in Iraq. Contagion of violence could spill out across the country. And in time, the entire region could be drawn into the conflict. With Israel weakened through diplomacy, Israel is no longer a strategic asset for the United States, but instead a security burden. With many interests at stake, in a regional war, the United States would likely 
not be willing or able to defend Israel. My vision is two states living side by side in peace. Years of misunderstanding of Islam by the Jews and the West would result in the Jewish tributary state being reunited with Dar al-Islam. Consequences for the West. In order to prosper in the world, the United States needs countries sympathetic to Western democracy, and U.S. security requires a global environment that includes a friendly and secure Western Europe, Japan, and Australia. The loss of Israel as a genuine Western ally in the Middle East will erode Western security, and a Middle East war will bring changes to most governments and borders. Other long-standing Western alliances will change with the natural revival of Islamic rule across Dar al-Islam. The West will suffer economic setbacks as disruption of oil supplies and higher energy prices ignites inflation across the world. U.S. companies with vast oil and other assets in the region will suffer loss of equipment, property, and profit. Financial markets will slide and world recession will set in. ممکن است به زودی خشم ملت‌های مسلمان به نقطه انفجار برسد امواج این انفجار در مرزهای منطقه ما محدود نخواهد شد from east to west global intifada will ensue with islamist uprisings along the borders of dar al-islam and dar al-harb as muslims demand sovereignty over territory where they are a majority and unity with Dar al-Islam. All Muslims know of their history as a superior religious, military, and cultural force in the world. Though the West makes no territorial claims on any part of Dar al-Islam, Muslims expect ultimate success over the West. The safety of Israel's 4 million Jews is a grave risk, and Jews worldwide will experience a loss of heart and rekindle feelings of permanent insecurity of Jews in Christian lands, once thought a thing of the past, without Israel as a refuge from persecution. By the Rivers of Babylon.